We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. Bold men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in. Ah, it's almost the end of the year. Oh my God. And then there's going to be another one. <laughs> Quick housekeeping. We haven't done that in a little bit. We have opened a merch shop. We've got t-shirts and hoodies and mugs and even onesies for your little baby aliens and baby alien allies. I hope you like them. I like them. They're colorful. <laughs> and if you order this week, they can even get to you by Christmas with rush delivery. And yeah, holidays are upon us. Hanukkah is already here. Happy Hanukkah. Other holidays are coming too, and we are putting together a holiday episode, and we want to hear from you. What do you miss about your home country? What are the cool, weird superstitions that you have for holidays? What did you come to love about the American holiday season? Uh, besides the orange-flavored chocolate at Trader Joe's. Anyway, maybe you have some crazy, funny, weird memory or story from your childhood. Or maybe you came up with something special for pandemic Christmas. I don't know. We're all doing Zoom, so... Call our Google Voice at 213-973-3813 and leave a message. Or record a voice memo and send it to wtapodconnect at gmail.com. I'll put this in the show notes, so... You don't have to rewind. I love holidays and I hate that it's such a mess this year and I don't get to see my family and I haven't seen them for a year and I want something special. I want Christmas. I have Christmas lights all over the house and it's not doing it. So please, please send me your stories. It's really easy. You just like call and talk for two minutes or five minutes or whatever. And don't worry, I'm, I'm going to edit it. So you're going to sound great. Okay, now on to this week's episode, the final interview of this year. And I'm excited, not because it's the last interview of this year, but because of my guest. Uh, some of you know uh, that I am slightly obsessed with salsa and bachata dancing. And this week on the podcast, I have one of the most beloved salsa dancers and one of the most in-demand salsa teachers out there, Carol Flores. Carol is a force. She was born and raised in Mexico City. And for years, she was part of the famous New York Yamule dance company. And now she's running her own Carol Flores army of salsa teams all over the world. But this conversation is not just about dance, so don't tune out if you're not a salsa person. Because besides being a stellar salsera, 
Carol is also an activist. And she doesn't shy away from putting her activist messages into her choreography. And I personally love it. I never thought that art should stay away from politics and activism. To me, there's nothing controversial about that. Art is the expression of the person's passion. And if done right, activism doesn't take away from the art. On the contrary, it actually gives art a focus point. Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation. I loved Carol's fiery Mexican New Yorker energy. And I felt a kindred spirit there. And I think you're going to love it too. So here's our chat. You, t you taught a class for Facebook? Yeah. They, That's they fun. contacted me. Yeah, it was it was it was like for intern internally for Facebook, like for their employees. That's nice. Yeah, I've had like weird like hirings. Like I worked for Walmart too, like in this in the pandemic, things that I never like did before. And what did Walmart want? Same thing, like a salsa class for, for their for their employees. Wow. So my usual two questions that I begin with are where did you come here from and when? So I came here from Mexico and when I finally, like I first came in 2005 and I went back and then I came back March, 2006. And that's when I like permanently stayed. Do you at this point feel that you're American? Whatever that means. Uh, never. I don't think I'm ever going to feel American. If I feel anything, it's New Yorker. Hmm. Um, I feel like I'm a Mexican New Yorker. I feel like they're totally different things, being an American and being a New Yorker. So I don't think I'll ever really identify with that concept of American, but I truly feel like New York is a place where I belong. I think I understand you because I feel Californian. I feel right. like an Angelina. <laughs> right. uh, but what do you put in into American when you say you you don't think you will identify with that? What is that? I mean, at the risk of offending anybody, right? Because obviously, like... You We're going to risk all... a couple times. Right. But, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, in Mexico, we see Americans are as, like, you know, like, either really, you know, white people or, like, now with everything that's going on with Trump, right? Like, mm -hmm. I identify, like, different Americans and, and, like, New Yorkers, Californians. Like, they're totally different, like, right, like almost, like, type of person than you would think of a person that's a Trump supporter, right? Yeah. So for me, Americans is a little bit like more close-minded, you know, like in Mexico or, or around the world, you have this concept where Americans don't know about geography, they don't own a passport, they're very close to where, you know, New Yorkers will, where are from all over the world in New York City, right? Like you're, you're, you're from here, but you're from everywhere. So, so I would say like just more close-minded more like it's just america is great and that's it right that's USA. I think, what i feel about america yeah like usa usa that's what i think yeah yeah i guess i i guess i relate to that boundary there uh of not being able to to relate to that you've done a lot of different things and in terms of what you do how would you define yourself these days 
I mean, I'm a dancer, right? Like, well, it, it's hard because a lot of people tend to say I'm a dancer. And I've had conversations where during COVID, where people cannot be on stage or where they cannot be in a class teaching, they feel like they've lost a part of themselves. So I don't like to say that I define myself as a dancer because I'm not a dancer. I'm a person who dances, right? Mm -hmm. Dancing is my career and dancing is what I do. And, and it's a lot of what I love. Um, but I don't define myself as a dancer. I define myself as a person who dances and loves to dance and gets to teach. If, if, if anything, I would identify myself or see myself more as a teacher than I am a dancer. I do want to get more into your creative work and those stuff that you do with teaching, because I think uh, your approach is rather unique. And that's why I asked how you define yourself, because <laughs> it almost looks like you're building a movement. Some people call it Carol Flores's army, right? Right. <laughs> yes. um, I guess because I'm just, you know, not in, in that world. And I really didn't expect to see such engagement through creative work with current day issues. Is that a common thing in your field or are you kind of unique? I would say it's kind of unique. I mean, at least in the salsa world, like I understand that everybody takes different approaches. I'm not the only one that's kind of like stands for something, of course. But I mean, even me, like, you know, when I started posting about Black Lives Matter, which is something that it's you know, I hold dear to my heart like, as much as I do feminism and like, just equality in general. I lost about 2,000 followers when I started being vocal about Black Lives Matter, right? So, How so? So the thing is, because people don't support the movement and people don't like, it's like, it's like what they told LeBron, right? Just dribble and shut up, right? Basically, some people are telling me just dance and shut up. We don't want to see you taking political stances. We just want to see your videos dancing. Right. So I think that it's hard to make a living as a dancer and then losing 2000 followers when you're making your living off of dancing or off of your social media during COVID is, is scary. Right. So I can see why some people might not want to take that risk. The thing is that I can't. This is how I was built. Since I was little, I always was very aware of like injustices and I always wanted to do something and I would cry when I would see injustice and I, I've always been like this. So I have no other way of being, not being involved or, or vocal or not using my art for something better just would go against who I am as a person, right? And I feel like, of course, I built a career and now I'm at the point where it's like, well, now it's my decision what I want to do with my art and I'm going to be responsible if I lose people or not. But I have to be true to what I feel and what I believe in, right? And for example, I did a choreography course and I used a song and I did like a video for it that, that was about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, in the middle of all the protests that were going on in the United States and everything that happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I was supposed to do a choreo course. To me, it made no sense to put out a video dancing like whatever, when we are having such important issues, like... It just didn't make sense for me. So it's been like this for everything. And, and through dance, I've discovered so much of myself and I've seen so many of the issues, right? Like I'm a huge feminist and I'm, and I'm very vocal about equality. And, and, I've, and it's mainly because I've seen all the misogyny and how patriarchal my industry is. So there's no way I cannot take a stance for that. 
for me, for every single woman that I dance with, for every single trans and queer person in the industry, there's no way I won't take a stance for that, right? For every single woman in color that's misrepresented. So for me, it just, it doesn't make sense. I can't do it otherwise, right? So it feels right. And I, I also totally respect and understand everybody who doesn't feel like, like they can be political about their career because not being political in today's climate I, I don't I don't see that you saying like Black Lives Matter or you know burn the patriarchy or F Trump. I don't see how that's political. That's just what's happening in the world right now. It's not about politics. But I do understand that like I said before, it's hard to make it as a dancer and some people might be afraid of losing people because not everybody has the same privilege. I've built a career and, and, and very I'm so grateful that I have at least something to stand on in the middle of a pandemic. Some people are starting their careers and they're scared. So I, I see why. I see why they wouldn't want to take a political stance with their dance. Well, and we have to give credit to your following because out of what, 67,000 you lost right. to? Right, like, right, right. That's, you know, what, it's <laughs> the, what like 5%, yeah. less than 5%. Yeah, yeah for sure, so. for sure. And I feel like, of course, like you come to Carol Flores page and if you've been following for following me for at least a month, you know, like if, if you're not somebody who believes in equality, you can't be on my page. So I'm not sad for losing those people. I get it. We have different points of view and I don't have tolerance. I, I, I say it with all the love and compassion that I have for everybody. I do not have tolerance for somebody that comes to me and tells me, oh no, all lives matter, or make America great again. Sorry, like, I'm not going to be tolerant if you're a Trump supporter. I just, I, I'm not. Like, I'm not going to be tolerant if you're a misogynist, or if you are homophobic, or transphobic, or racist. No, that's just a clear no for me. I don't have friends who are, and some people tell me I should be tolerant of those differences. I'm not. And I won't. <laughs> I it's a it's a very strong statement. It's a challenging uh, conversation. And I'm actually glad that you're you're so willing to engage in that. I feel like I feel like one of the reasons why people don't say things right or they don't go into these conversations is because of this cancel culture, right? Where where you say the wrong thing and all of a sudden like we're gonna cancel you. Look, listen, people are gonna make mistakes and people are learning, people are evolving. I've made mistakes in the past. I've had misogynistic, patriarchal behaviors, sexist behaviors, for sure. Many times I've probably done uh, racist things when I came to the US. I've like, we've all made these mistakes. If we cancel everybody for the mistakes they made in the past, then there's no room for improvement. Less and less people are staying quiet. Uh, because right. it's just impossible. You know, I was thinking about after the election, a lot of people were saying, oh, I can't believe half of the country voted for him. I think it was a bit of a shocker. Somehow, always, it's a shocker for Democrats. We don't seem to learn. But at the same time, I was thinking about how it is literally about, you know, glass half full or half empty. And yes, you can focus on the fact that half the country voted for him, but you can also focus on the fact that more than half the country voted for Democrats. And how do we turn into a full glass is the question. We have to make choices for the world, right? Even if we don't talk about race or we don't talk about sexism, if we talk about the Paris Agreement, 
right? If we talk about, you know, the environment, well, Trump is messing that up and that's our world. Nothing is scarier than carbon emissions and the world just, you know, going to shit. Sorry, I don't know if I curse, right? So, so nothing, nothing is scarier than that. So I think that we've come to a point where, yes, it's black or white, where, yes, I, I understand that maybe Democrats don't, it won't completely like align with your values in terms of money, but how about everything else that Trump stands for? Right. And even the money thing, I mean, excuse me, when people say, you know, oh, it's a welfare state and oh, they're like all those handouts, but some of the biggest groups who are on the welfare and receiving the food stamps are the employees, I think it was like one third of the employees of Walmart and McDonald's are on food stamps. And so how is that a business? How is that a viable enterprise that it has to use such underpaid labor that government has to subsidize their labor force? Like what kind of excuse me, communist thinking is that? Right, right. right. Why is government supposed to subsidize their business right. while they're trading at the top of the market? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a super tricky conversation, especially because something that I have come to realize like in the last few months is that obviously I get all my information from my side of the story, right? I don't follow, follow Fox News. I don't even have the tolerance to listen to Trump, right? Like I had to turn off the debate. Like I can't, I cannot like wrap <laughs> around my brain that that person can be a president, right? So, yeah. so at the end of the day, I think it, it should have been important for me to also listen to the other side of the story to have a more, um, I guess, pragmatic approach, but I didn't. And I know that, I cannot stand for absolutely anything that Trump stands for. And I and I understand that there may be some smart arguments why some smart, educated people voted for Trump. I don't know them. But what I do know is that I can't vote for somebody who says, oh, I'll grab her pee. Right. Like, yeah. I can't I can't stand for that. So, yeah, it's it's, it's such tricky conversation. But but at the end of the day is it's what I'm saying, like, we need to be able to come together Right now, we're grateful that he didn't win. For me, I cried. I was in the park and I was crying when, when I heard the news because I felt like my faith in humanity was restored. Because yes, at the end of the day, there are people who still voted for Trump for whatever their reasons, but there were more people who didn't. And that I think that speaks volumes. And I think that that's what we should be focusing on. You know, like there were more people who who said racism is not acceptable, who said sexism is not acceptable. And here we are. And now he's going to go. And I am so happy. <laughs> and yeah, I think that I think that sorry for interrupting, but I think that what's tricky with that is that when people idealize you as a public figure, right, they forget that there's a human behind and it goes both ways. Right. They forget that you can stand for something because you're a person regardless of your skill and also they forget that you can also be a bad person regardless of your skill right and i think that people have to be very uh picky about who they they look up to right because there is a human behind and i for me 
I cannot respect you as an artist if I cannot respect you as a human. It's hard. I think that's where there's been a disconnect, right? Because it's like, oh, she's being political. I don't want to hear it. She's, she's the dancer. Like, why is she talking? Right? So then when we bring this human part of it, then I think that it forces people to observe the humans. And when, they, when it forces you to observe humans, then you observe also the bad ones. And then you're forced to be like, oh, wait, I cannot follow this person anymore because this person is a racist. Right. So it's so much easier to not have to humanize people. So if your artists and your idols are not taking any political stances, it's just easy to see them as dancers and not as people, because then you don't have to see everybody. Right. Because if you follow me and say Carol is a feminist, then and you say I'm a feminist, too. And then you see me as a person then somebody comes and is sexist. You cannot tolerate it. So you rather right. just stay in this bubble where your artists are not human. They just dance or they just dribble or they just, you know, do whatever they do. So you don't have to look at their principles and you can follow them regardless of their principles. Well, and the, cra the crazy part is then when the cancel culture, as you mentioned, comes in, because then when somebody is thrown into the doghouse, there's no way out. I mean, very few made it back and maybe for a good reason, but maybe not always. We live in a society that's constantly changing and we live in we live in a world today where information is at, you know, one click away. Um, so it's easier to grow and it's easier to realize your mistakes. So I think that we have to be open to making the mistakes and then apologizing for them. Right. Especially if you're if you're a public figure, if you're somebody Who, who people follow and who somebody who people trust, you can't take that lightly. And that, I think that that's the problem, right? I have to think before I act because I know there might be, I don't know, maybe 15-year-old girls that look up to me and who are gonna use a face mask that I, that I say that they should use, right? So that is not something that you're supposed to take lightly. And if you see it as that, if you see the what it really means to be an influencer, then you can really be careful about the things that you do and you say. And even if you mess up, it's okay for you to be like, I'm human, I messed up, I take this back, I, and I'm genuinely wanting to learn and open to learn or wanting to make things better, right? So I think that that's a disconnect because people who don't see themselves as influencers or don't see the responsibility behind being a public figure. And I say this quote unquote because I'm not a public figure per se. Like I have 70,000 followers. I'm talking here like I have a million followers, but in my own little bubble, right? There, I have some people who follow me and I have some people who trust me. So not everybody sees it that way. Not everybody wants to get that, like, assume that responsibility. They want to have the fame, they want to have the money, but they don't want to assume the responsibility of being a public figure or somebody who, who is loved and admired and respected. So then when they do something, they become defensive. They're like, oh, I can do whatever the hell I want because I'm a person and this is what it is. Or like, they just get defensive. Who the, who the hell are you to tell me what am I supposed to say or not? Well, who? Somebody who's been supporting you or somebody who's a follower. And that means a lot, right? So I think that that's a disconnect. A lot of these people take their responsibility very lightly. And then when they make a mistake, they become defensive and they are not willing to learn. They're not willing to say, I'm sorry. And that's when cancel culture really happens. But people who can come to the front and say, listen, I've been out here, I've put myself out there, and I made a mistake, and I'm willing to continue to learn, and I'm willing to continue to evolve, and I am sorry for my mistakes, and I think that 
people are a lot more compassionate and understanding than we think. And people can take apologies and people can forget and forgive. Well, I think we're definitely going to have to learn it. I don't think we're very good at that yet. Let me ask you this. Speaking of being an influencer, you were a dancer before you became the influencer and you kind of got into a performing space even before. But um, was there at any point um, a moment where you had to have a conversation with yourself and ask yourself, am I willing to be a public figure or did you just kind of slip into that with as the as your following grew and you found yourself there i mean i think there's many parts to that question for me because i grew up with my family being public figures my family in mexico they're they're actresses and actors right um so for me uh, being a public figure is not Uh, this is so like it's not separate from like how I grew up and my personality so I don't see myself as a public figure right it's just kind of like a part of the package how I grew up so I don't see myself as a public figure especially because I I feel like genuinely every single person who I don't know signs up for my online classes those twenty dollars that that person pays those twenty dollars add up to my rent I see every single one of them and I try to respond to every single one of them and I try to make sure that I am genuine with the things that I do because I know there's a single person behind that number. And I see the, the privilege that they have given me to be able to be stable in the middle of the pandemic, to be able to have a job, to be able to realize my dreams because I know this sounds like an Oscar nomination, but I don't have that if, they, if I don't have them. So I'm not a public figure. I'm in the grind with them. Does that make sense? Well, that's what a good public figure says. <laughs> <laughs> When I say public figure, I, I mean it. And in that sense, we all are because we speak to an unlimited number of people. Once we put it on the social media, we don't know who's going to see it. And as you were saying, a 15-year-old girl may be seeing uh this post and you wearing or not wearing a mask in that sense you are a public figure you are in in the public eye um and so then you are kind of in that place where you start having to make those decisions about what parts of yourself your story do you share or not share um and that's my question like what is it for you the thing is that i value authenticity in general um so because i value authenticity i automatically assume people value authenticity so for me to share some parts and others not doesn't feel authentic right so for example like i don't know like i you know i work with a company of supplements right but before i work with the company of supplements i tried the supplements but like I, these supplements were recommended by my doctor. I tried the supplements. I love the supplements. And I would start putting them on social media because I love them. So then I was like, oh, let me reach out to them and then work, work something out with them. So then, well, I can make maybe a commission or at least I can get the products for free in exchange for posts, right? Mm -hmm. But I had already tried them and I had already uh, know that they were good. And then I put it out there, right? So for people to trust me, they gotta know that I use, use the supplements, but why do I use the supplements, right? 
then they, people to trust me, they need to know why I use the supplements, right? So I use the supplements because I had a situation with mold, right? So then it's like, it, it starts being a, a chain of things. So if I don't want to share my mold story, then it's not going to make sense why I'm taking the supplements. Then people are going to think that I'm just getting money for them and they're not going to trust me to buy them, right? Mm. So I think that in order for me to have an impact, I have to show everything that's happening with me so people can trust me. Right. And then that goes for them having him as my followers. That works for business. That works for my connection with the people who love me and admire me. That works for everything. Because if you don't build that trust by being authentic, then you really don't have a business. So I share everything because I value their trust more than anything. I really do. People go and buy the product that I, that I suggest. I can't take that lightly. I can't play with people's money or trust or health. Yeah. It's really admirable because I think we all know how money talks and the social media has become this whole weird uh, reflection on how people just will do anything, you know, starting from, you know, buying followers and then selling that audience to the advertisers to advertise product that you don't right. even know to an army yeah. of bots. It's, it's crazy. I do think about it a lot, probably more than uh, I should, about I really value, same as you, authenticity and truth uh, probably above most things because I think without it, nothing else can you know happen. And it really saddens me. And I think we've all taken the sabbaticals from from social media and how 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 wrong a lot of it is. And I just really hope that we find that society finds a way to to find its authenticity in that space. Yeah, I mean, I hope mainly for the younger generations, right, that I that are growing up. Um, with a lot of deception. I watch what I do because I know I have 10, 15 year old girls from my, my own goddaughter who idealizes me and does absolutely everything that I say. And it's like, I have to keep evolving and I have to keep making sure that, that I'm worthy of my, my, my goddaughter idealizing me when she's 18, right? I love it. I think that's a, such a great control group to to keep in mind. I definitely hear you because I I know some young girls are following me, and I try to I try to think about them. Speaking of you know being young and growing up, I I kind of want to you know go back a little bit and get into your story. Um, so tell me a little bit about your family. It sounds like it's a fascinating crowd. Yeah, I mean, I have an, an amazing, complicated family, I guess. Um, you know, I, I, people ask me why I'm a feminist. And I think that one of the main reasons is because I grew up in a family of women, right? I grew up in a family of women where my mom worked to pay our bills. My grandmother was, a, was an actress, but imagine she, she was an actress and a singer in the 50s, right? That's not easy to be an actress and a singer in the 50s, right? So I grew up with my grandmother and obviously like there's a lot of issues there with, with my family. Like a lot of people think I grew up super wealthy and I didn't grow up super wealthy. I have like, I have this like super crazy fan 
I'm gonna call it fan on social media who like every other day creates a new fake profile to just like say really nasty things at me and one of them is like oh I know you grew up privileged and I know you came to the states with money and I know you had money right and it's like she's obsessed and I, I don't want to say she I think it's I think I know who it is but this person because maybe it's not a girl but this person is obsessed with the fact that she really believes that because I come from a family of actresses, I was rich and privileged growing up. But what people don't see is that I grew up without a mother because my mother was working really hard to make sure I was in a good pub, uh, private school in Mexico, right? So while I grew up with the privilege of being in a private school and being able to learn English from when I was young, I also grew up alone because my mom was working all the time for me, right? So. So I grew up with some amount of money. I wasn't poor, but I was middle class. And um, my grandmother was an actress and a lot of people in my family are, are actresses, but that doesn't mean that we were rich, right? In any way, yeah. that just means that, you know, the privilege that I grew up with is like, you know, understanding fame and, and seeing this firsthand and, and just having this kind of like creative family around me all the time. That has been a, a great privilege for sure, because I feel like, one of the reasons why I can be creative and why I can be comfortable being an artist, right? Without having that taboo of like artists are losers, right? That's because I grew up with a family. For sure. Artist. So that's what my family gave me a lot. So, so it, you know, it's been, it was a great childhood, but I grew up with my mom and my grandmother and I saw them work as much as I saw them cook and as much as I saw them helping me survive. So I never saw a distinction between a woman and a man. Right. I never saw I never heard in my household. Well, because you're a woman, you need to learn how to uh, how to cook or like you women. Women can drive like I saw my mom driving as much as I saw her cooking. So I think that was a big, big influence in 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 how I grew up to to be a feminist. So, yeah, I grew up in Mexico and I according to me, I was never going to be an artist. I was going to go to college and I did a few soap operas when I was growing up and I didn't like it. I was like, this is not for me. I want to do biochemical engineering or political sciences and I want to save the world and the, the environment. And then, of course, like there's transgenerational trauma that's always going to be there and there's imposter syndrome that's always going to be there. And I think that at one point in my life, when I was about to go to college, I thought I wouldn't be able to do it, right? And it was at the same time that I kind of started dancing salsa and I was excelling at salsa. So then I think that unconsciously, I was like, well, definitely this, is gonna, this route is gonna be easier because that's what I've seen throughout my entire life, just artists, right? Mm -hmm. So I went, I went on that route and, and I don't regret it in any way, but I do think that, that it wasn't a fully informed decision. I think that it was a decision that I made because I was scared that I wouldn't be able to make it somewhere else because I didn't see it in my family. Nobody in my family up until now has graduated from college. So, but they're all artists. So wow. I went, I went that, that route. That is such an interesting story because usually, and well, the majority of people are not born into families of artists by definition. Right. And so right. <laughs> most people tell the opposite story. And that's what my story is. I feel that uh, similar as you, my decision to go to law school originally was because it kind of made sense because of my environment. And of course, there was the taboo of art is not for you and everything is through bed and you have no business being in that. Um, right. 
And so I went into law school because of that. And I feel that I actually wished to go into arts at a younger age. And of course, there's this always, but clearly in some way you did the right thing and and achieved the success. Yeah, but you know what? I think that one of the reasons why I'm successful is because even though I didn't graduate from college, my high school was one of the top business schools in Mexico. And because I didn't want to be an artist, I was focused in school, right? And I was very smart. Like I went to a school where we had entrepreneurial uh, uh, projects and where it was like I, I studied French and English in my school. So I think that that in a way, the reason why I was able to be successful in my career beyond kind of like the glass ceiling, right? Beyond like, or being able to understand passive income or like having a business when it comes to dancing was because I didn't want to be a dancer and I didn't want to be an Mm. artist. And that's not to say that if you're just a dancer or an artist, you won't see the business side of it. But I didn't grow up with this kind of like, I'm an artist and I love art. And I, you know, like I grew up like, okay, I'm an artist now and, and I'm a dancer now, but I also have to make money and I also have to have a business because I had that business education when I was in high school right so I think mm-hmm. that that played a big role in me today surviving a pandemic with a business as a dancer I love that I'm realizing that especially for immigrants entrepreneurship is a lot of times the way to go for example somebody's resume that has a foreign name will be looked at differently for HR, it's one thing if your name sounds Latino or Black, and then they have to fill, you know, the diversity requirement, and then maybe your resume gets pushed further. And then my name doesn't sound like nothing. It just sounds foreign. <laughs> and I've been told that, hey, you may want to change your name. But I really brushed it off. My argument was always, if they can pronounce Zagalifanakis, they will learn to pronounce Zagalifanakis. <laughs> Like, that's not that hard, <laughs> was my argument. But the thing is, it's not about the pronunciation. It's about the reading of it. And I feel that um, it's kind of a long way of getting at uh, how I feel that immigrants a lot of times have to create opportunities for themselves. And I think your path is a great example of that. Can you tell me a little bit about how that entrepreneurial approach, when did you start thinking about it? about your career in that way deliberately i mean i think there's there's a couple of things that that matter there and i think that my opinion right now comes from a position of privilege in a way because in my field in salsa dancing uh being latino is kind of the best you know thing that you can be sure because it's salsa, right? So, so I, I it, it would be hard to give an objective opinion on that because I'm not looked at le- as a less off in the salsa world. Where if I could, if I would be in another business, being florist and a woman would be tougher, right? So, yeah. I am ta- I'm coming from a place where being a Latina is kind of like the ideal thing, quote unquote, in the salsa world. But I think that one of the main things that really kind of pushed everything into place for me has been the people around me, right? Because I haven't done this alone by any means, right? I, I think that I, I have an entrepreneurial ma- mind 
in the sense that, for example, right now I had a tragedy happen to me. I lost all my stuff, absolutely everything, right? And in one of those moments where I was panicking, right? Like I was panicking because I have to start over. I have to buy everything from scratch in the middle of a pandemic where we're not working as much as we were before, where, you know, we don't, everything is uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The first thing I did is sat down on my computer and reach out to absolutely every single company that I consume and write them, hey, I have 76,000 followers. Do you want to collaborate? Mm-hmm. So I could find a way to not only reduce costs, right, but also potentially get maybe codes and maybe like if they give me a, a percentage of the things that are being sold. So that was my, 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 um, my panic mode, action, right? And I think that that's one of the things that defines me and even my therapist. She's like, you go into action mode. As soon as something crazy happens to you, you go into action mode. And that's the thing. And, and, and it could be potentially exhausting, but it has, it has served me, right? That I have this action mode, like, okay, something is bad, let's go. What do we do? How can we solve it? What can we do? So I think that's one of the big things that have allowed me to, to be successful. But like I said, I think the main one was people. Right. When when my career was taking off and I was alone and I was in this dance company, I had a friend who was like, oh, let's do a DVD. Right. Like, Mm. like, are you not seeing like the reach that you have right now? Let's do a DVD. And then eventually there was maybe another friend who was like, oh, you have to learn how to save money. And then I stumbled about around my assistant who was a student. Right. And I was like, hey, do you want to help me out with my emails? And then in return, you don't have to pay for my stuff. And she was like, sure. But then she became my everything, right? She's the person who's after me. She's the person who's like, Carol, don't forget to do this. And she sits down literally with my boyfriend because they work together and they think about what next masterclass I can do and how I can sell this and that. So yes, of course, I have this personality, but but you can't do it alone. And people who do try to do it alone, it's either going to take longer or it's going to be much harder because they see things that you don't see and they also push you in different ways, right? So I feel like a lot of the things that I've accomplished, I owe to the people that I've had around me that are constantly pushing me and constantly helping me create and innovate and just, they don't allow me to sit down and be comfortable. They do not allow me to, to just do that. They're constantly pushing me and, and I, I owe them so much, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Well, tell me early on, you start in your career, you, when you started uh, dancing in Mexico, and what was the impetus to move to the U.S.? It wasn't like, a, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a moment. It wasn't a decision. So it's very strange because I first started coming to the U.S. to take classes, right? Because it's the same thing. I'm action, right? It was like, oh, I want to learn more. I really like this. Let me take a year off college to train. So I came to the U.S. I literally saved up all the money that I could. I asked my mom to, to help me with money. I asked my stepfather. I put money together and I came to the U.S., And then I quickly became friends with Osmar Perrones, who is the director of Yamule, who is the dance company that I started dancing with. Me and my boyfriend at the time, and we became close friends, and he helped us out a lot, right? Like, he helped, he let us use the studio to rehearse, and then at some point he was like, do you, do you want to join the company? And I was like, me? Why? Like, I'm a beginner, I don't know what I'm doing, this was an amazing company, so he gave me the opportunity, and I decided I was going to take it. After a while, I went back to Mexico and my stepfather was like, you have to go to college. What are you doing? You never wanted to do this. Remember that you want to go to school, whatever. Mm-hmm. I came back to New York. I told Osmar, I'm going back to Mexico. This is not for me. I have to go back to college. 
Then Osmar called me. He said, hey, I have a tour through Italy and Spain. Do you want to do it? My mom and my stepfather actually told me, if you go, you're never going to come back. Mm. And I promised them. And this, to this day, this is the only promise I've ever broken to my mom. Mm. I said, I promise I will come back. I left for the tour and I, naturally I never come back. Osmar told me like, listen, Carol, at the end of the day, even if you have it good in Mexico, even if you can go to school in Mexico, the opportunities that you're going to have in a first world country, they're going to be greater than the opportunities that you're going to have in a third world country. And you're, you're being handed the opportunity to stay in this country. So take it, right? So I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like... It wasn't like at this point, and like I, and again, this comes from a privileged position because there's people who leave their country because they don't have a better option. Yeah. And I had a, I had an option in Mexico. I, I certainly did. I, I made the decision to stay here because I wanted to dance and because I, I was offered the opportunity to do my papers and become an American resident. And, and it's an opportunity I couldn't, I couldn't just let go. So I took it. Right? right, I took the opportunity, and and here here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what were the some of the challenges for you as a as a Mexican girl in New York? Uh, what were the hardest things? Listen, it was hard. It was it was hard as hell to tell you the truth. Like, I don't think I don't know how I went through a lot of the things that I went through when I first came to New York. Like the the cultural shock right of, of like just simply you we're different culturally right so in mexico you're not exposed to so many cultures in mexico in general and i'm going to say completely in general we're all mexican mm -hmm. right we all kind of like have one culture and why one way of speaking and one way of acting and of course there's different classes and there's different regions and of course we're all different but in general we are the same And then I come to New York and everybody's different, right? And I was crucified. I mean, mind you, I don't have an easy personality, right? Like I, I am very outspoken and I am strong. And of course I've evolved and grown, but back then I was like, you know, really intense. I mean, I still am very intense, right? But I was like just super intense. And then I came to the US with nothing. And it, the company at the time became my everything. Right. And I come from a family who's very competitive. We believe that we have to constantly fight other women for our spot. That's how we grow up. Mm. Right. Thinking there's just not enough space for women in any industry. So we have to fight other women to get this right. That's how we're that's how we're built. That's why they say, oh, women can't work together and they're catty and whatever, because that's what the patriarchy has done. Right. Make us believe, well, there's not enough room for you. So then you have to fight for it. It was just a terrible combination in a company led by mainly men who are from the Caribbean, <laughs> who you could argue are very sexist. So it was just horrible for me. And, and listen, I, I don't want to come across as ungrateful because they gave me so many opportunities. This company made my career or helped me make my career and my name. And I am an American citizen because of them. And I'm able to ha be here because of them. It's not about that. It's just what it is, right? Like people are different and some people belong with some people and some people don't belong with some people. Well, and, and also a person can be a good person and can be a great professional, but can have some uh, questionable beliefs or questionable sure. or act in questionable ways at certain times. 
So there's nothing, I don't think you're being um, unfair. That's your experience, what you're sharing. So, right. No, and like, and, and it's mixed with, of course, a lot of, a, a lot of gratitude and I'm very grateful, but it was tough and I was very depressed for a long time and, and I hit rock bottom badly. Can you tell me a little more about it? And the reason I'm trying to get at it and not, it's not because I, you know, want to get something out of you. It's more about every immigrant goes through that. I was here alone, right? Like I said before, and And I was constantly told that I was this or that, right? And, and if you, for example, like if I was told that I'm bossy or that I'm a bitch, right? And then I go home and my mom is there and I'm crying. And my mom is like, but no, you're not a bitch. You're a nice person, blah, 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 blah. You feel better. But I would go home alone or I would go home to the same people who were constantly telling me that I was this or I was that, right? So in my nature, I wanted to prove them wrong. Mm. So I think that that's one of the things that hurt me most because I knew that I wasn't this or that I wasn't that, or I knew that my intentions weren't what they were taught, saying that they were. So for a long time, I stayed just to prove that I wasn't what they were saying that I was. And the thing is that the more I tried, the more they criticized, crucified me because the more they thought I was being inauthentic and the more it was, it was just, it was terrible. Right. And then it came to the point where I looked at myself in a mirror literally and didn't know who I was anymore because I had already believed them so much. Right. I believed what they said. And to this day, I still struggle with a lot of the things that they said about me. And the thing is that I am a woman and I am an immigrant and I was here alone and I had no support. So then when you're being constantly told that you are something and you have nobody else to tell you otherwise but yourself, you're going to start believing it. And that is very dangerous. That is very dangerous because that's very manipulative, right? And then you start acting or behaving in ways that you don't even recognize and you start changing so much. And I think that that happens to a lot of people who are here alone. Hmm. And what do you feel was the biggest damage from that in terms of, from what I'm hearing, is that you kind of betrayed yourself and... and tried to turn into something else you know the thing is that that never really happened i think that that was the issue that i never turned into what they wanted me to turn so i was always a problem for them i was just always an issue right and like i said I w i'm not a victim i played my part it takes two to tangle and i take full responsibility for my part of the situation but i think that that was the issue that i never really gave in till this day Till this day, these people fucking hate that I don't give in, right? That I still don't do or act or say exactly what they think I should be doing or acting or saying. And I won't because I, I stick to my values and my principles and, and I have to be true to myself because otherwise who will if I don't believe in myself, right? But the dangerous part is that that started to fade, That understanding of who I was and that faith and belief in myself and my resilience and the goodness of myself and my values, that started to fade. And I started to question, oh, maybe they are right. Maybe I am this or maybe I am that. And that's when I said I'm leaving. Do you remember a specific moment? There's, I think there's two things. One is 
the lack of responsibility of people for their own feelings. I'm sorry, but I cannot ruin your experience. You ruin your own experience by me. I allowed them to ruin my experience. They didn't ruin my experience. But I think the other side of it is that it happens so often that people expect for others to be tolerant of their personalities, but they don't want to be tolerant of others' personalities. So they wanted me to accept how they are, right? Because there were things about them that I disliked culturally simply, right? Like they sit in a table and they all like eat each other's food, right? You don't do that in Mexico. I don't go into somebody's plate and just be like, mm, what's your food taste like? But, but to them, it's normal and, and it's not a bad thing. But with the moment I, I got offended because they reached into my plate, then I was a bad person. Oh, she doesn't want to share her food, right? So I was supposed to accept that they digged into my plate, but they wouldn't accept that I said, I didn't grow up like that. Don't fucking touch my food, right? So it's like, that's what's happening. It's like, you're expected as an immigrant to adjust, but they don't give you the same tolerance back, right? They don't, they don't understand that, that, if we're gonna be together, you, you too have to adjust to me, even though I'm the one that came from a different country, right? This tolerance of our, of our difference is something that is lacking so much in our society in general because it doesn't go one way, right? So, so I think that that was what, what was happening with me in that situation, that it was like, I was supposed to fit the mold. And the thing is that, the things that served them, they were great, right? Because I was like organized and this and this and that. They loved that. But when that came, right? So they love it when you're like, oh no, we should do things like this and this and this until it comes to a point where they just don't want that anymore. So then you're bad. But when it was serving them, when it was serving them that you were like that, it was fine. So it's like, it's a very much a double standard. And, and, and I think that again, it's not, it's no judgment. We're all learning. We're all people. We're all growing. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it, until we come to the realization that we're all different and we all deserve respect for our differences, we're just not going to move forward. I want to move back a little bit in the conversation. <laughs> Right. And and zoom in, in in that moment where you were talking about that difficult place where you were uh, forgetting who you are and not knowing uh, how to be, because I I always say that uh, immigration is like reincarnation without having to physically die, and. I think in a way, every immigrant goes through that experience of losing the ground fully under their feet and having to find their new being. I want to ask you if there was a specific moment or a situation that pushed you or made you realize that you're different or made you realize that you're in so much pain that you cannot handle it anymore. I think they're gradual. There, there was a specific moment where I was just arguing on the phone with my director and he was like just calling me names and telling me I was a bag of problems and I, all I did was just be problematic. And, and, and I was crying so much and, and I had a roommate and she came in and she was like, Carol, why do you keep doing this to yourself? Who cares what this guy think, right? But this guy to me was like my father. 
-hmm. He was all I have. He was a total father figure. So for him to just not accept me was so painful, especially when I didn't have a father figure, right? So at that moment, I was like, yes, like why, you know? But, But at the end of the day, to this day, I still look for his approval, even though he's not in my life at all. In my mm. head, if I create a routine, I think about whether he would like it or not to this mm. day, right? So, so I think that I've had to do a lot of soul searching throughout the years. I had to, first of all, get completely removed from the environment, right? Just like the mold, right? Until you re- don't remove yourself from a toxic environment, you're just not going to get better. So I, I removed myself from the environment. And I'm not saying... They're toxic. I'm just saying the combination of us was just toxic, right? Because, you, you know, it's not, it's not putting blame on anybody. It's just what it is. And, and then after that, I, I started building a totally different support system. And I started building this, this kind of like thing with the women, right? Where, where it was like, you know, people make businesses out of necessities. And for me, I realized one of my biggest flaws in the company was that I was so competitive that I burned so many bridges, right? And that's just something that is so ingrained in me. Like, like if, if I see another woman like threatening in any way my position, I, I become like, Ugh, you know, like just like negative and competitive. And I don't like that about myself. And that's how I grew up. And I have compassion for myself because I know that's how I grew up. But that doesn't mean that it's not a behavior that I want to change and work on. And when I started working with women, I was like, we're so much stronger together right and then i built my team and a lot of the people in my team they're also immigrants and they're also people who are here by themselves so i decided like the way i wanted to build my team like every single every single year when everyone one has a birthday we all chip in like a good amount of money and we give that person a good expensive gift like something that they really want but they can't afford for themselves right because being an immigrant you sometimes struggle with money right so i was like we're gonna put it together and we're 10 15 but we put 30 bucks each and we can get each other a nice gift something that they really want so i started doing those little things and like creating a community of women where we understand that we don't compete that we're all in this together that for a show to work we all have to work hard for anything to work we just all have to be in it so little by little I started working on my biggest flaw through my friends and through the support system so it kind of like the coin completely changed around right like when people were so toxic for me in this environment, I decided I was not gonna allow that in my new environment. So I made the choice to make sure that the people who were around me were smarter than me, were better than me, would help me grow, will, you know, will, will be there to support me and I will be there to support them. And I think that that's what changed everything around. When I realized that, you know, somebody told me this, they say, and we've heard this, right? Like you are the sum of the five people you're closest with. That was one of the, that was one of the moments when I, when I decided that I was going to leave this company Hmm. because I said, this is who I'm surrounded with. And, and, and and like I said, it's not knocking them in any way, but that's just not what I wanted. Right. I was like, I want different. So then I was like, I'm going to create my circle. And I literally can tell you, I selected my friends from my students And I said, we should, you and you and you and you, we should hang out. And I selected carefully my group of friends. And that changed everything for me. That I made the choice of the people that I wanted to have around me. And that changed everything in every single way. I think that's such an important, and, you know, I've, 
talk to a lot of immigrants and and everybody talks about this uh, aloneness and having to rebuild your uh, family in some way, find it. And it's very interesting how you were, uh, you you kind of did it twice, at least right. from what you're telling right. me, like you first fell, kind of fell into, and which was a great opportunity and great growth experience. And for sure. And then you had to move on to another family and and build it consciously and make it in a different way. And I think it's uh, a lot of times I talk with my guests about this intentionality uh, of, I think that is unique to immigrant experience because I remember being back in Russia and then even looking at my friends who stayed, you're kind of on a, on a railroad and you're on it, you're on the path and you don't need to worry too much about setting the intention to to get somewhere or to make something. You It takes you there. Whereas in, in the new world, you kind of have to be really intentional about it. And, and learning constantly, right? Because when, when I'm in Mexico, I know how to act around my friends, but here I've gotten in trouble with my closest friends because they were gonna get married and I didn't know that I had to send a uh, engagement present and then uh, a, a bachelorette present and then uh, not, I don't know what the hell present and then the wedding present and I didn't know and I just sent the wedding present and everybody was mad at me because I didn't send the other gifts. But nowadays, I think the most difficult part about being an immigrant to me is that if I go to Mexico now, I also have to learn because I'm not fully Mexican anymore. Right. Yeah. And I'm here and I'm not fully American or New York at all. So it's like I'm no I'm nowhere. I'm in limbo. Right. Like, who am I? It's really hard to define because I'm not American, but I'm also not Mexican anymore. So it's like I think I think that's the true real challenge of being an immigrant, that there's going to be one point where just right in the middle where you identify a lot with this side, also with this side, but neither fully with either. And that's where this podcast actually came out of that exact feeling and that's why it's called we the aliens because we are even if we're you know citizens even if we've lived here for 40 years we will always be different (laughs) yeah and we will also be different for our home and so we become this alien everywhere and in from that comes this need to build a whole different kind of identity. And this is where I want to kind of turn to your work because I feel that a lot of it is um, rooted in it or reflected in it. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got to start creating sort of activist routines? (laughs) I think it's, like I said, I think one is out of principle. Like it doesn't make sense to me otherwise but also out of necessity, right? I feel like I won't live on, in a better world until I try to help and build a better world, right? So, so I struggle a lot with being a strong woman in the salsa world, right? I'm seen constantly as a difficult person. I'm seen constantly as a controlling person. I'm seen constantly as manipulative. I'm seen constantly as hard to work with or a diva, right? Constantly, especially I mean, mainly by the men, right? And then, of course, all the women that kind of like, you know, it's like what we say, like white women who vote for Trump, right? It's like because the proximity to the white man, 
right? So, so of course, a lot of these women and their proximity to this patriarchal kind of society, it's better for them to be with the men than to be against the men, right? So these women also are kind of like against me, which, like I said, I'm not a victim. I also played my part in a lot of these conflicts. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, it was like, okay, until this changes, it's not going to change for me. Until the salsa world becomes less sexist, I won't have a better experience. So if you want it, if you want a better world, you got to take your part in it, right? You can't just expect or hope for a better world. So for me, it was like action, right? We've, we've spoken about action so many times. So it's like, I need, I need to create a better society for, for, for me, for my friends, for my dancers. Well, let's do it and let's do it through the art, but it has to be good. It has to be good, right? Like, that's what I tell my dancers. I said, if we're going to get on stage and we're going to send the message, the dancing has to be good. So we work really hard as dancers because otherwise you're not taken seriously. I love that. And I love how, you, how you're adamant about that. And <laughs> just for somebody who is not really part of, the, of that world, uh, how does, uh, tell me, how does misogyny look in the, in the salsa world? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, usually the, the, the famous choreographers are men, the directors of teams are men. If you, if you see a woman's group, it's like, it can never be good. A woman's team can never be good, but a guy's team can or a mixed team can because it's led by a director, right? When, when I tell you I'm a strong woman, but I still would get on stage with a guy and he would teach the class and I'd be there just like a fucking idiot, like not talking, And like inside, I'd be burning just simply by, by this. When you teach a class, right? When, when you teach a partner work class, there is so much to be taught about how to lead a turn, but there's zero to be taught about how to follow, right? You're just supposed to be born knowing how to follow, right? It's like women are supposed to be born learning how to be mothers and work at the same time and clean and cook, right? Nobody can teach you this. You're, you're oh, you don't know how to cook? Oh my God. Where's the gene? What happened to you? You're not a woman, right? Women are supposed to just know how to follow. You go to a class, everything is taught for the guy, and the women are just supposed to figure it out. Oh, don't ask questions. Don't learn the pattern. Just follow. That's what you're supposed to do. Just follow, right? Just that message alone. Just follow. Just follow. Just follow. That message alone is just so misogynistic. And I understand there's a follow and a, and a leading part of dancing, but that doesn't have to do with men and women. To this day, they tell you, They tell you, professional dancers who are on top of the field, they say, this man cannot win the men's solo competition because he, he moves in a feminine way, Ooh. right? Because everything feminine is negative. If you have a woman who dances masculine, it's okay. But if you have a guy who's feminine and is dancing, that's not acceptable, hmm. right? A woman can only be either like a guy or sexy and sex sell sex. But anything else in between, feminine, sensual, all that, mm, she's not strong enough, right? So that still happens. And then the thing is that it's so hard for women to take another stance, right? So then they feel like they have no choice but to show their ass and to twerk on the floor and like do those things. And the thing is that there's nothing wrong with owning your body. Don't get me wrong. What's wrong is selling it because you think you have no choice. Yes, 
right? So you can twerk all you want and you can wear the thong and, and I respect it 100%, but because you want to do it and because you feel comfortable with it, not because you think it's the only way you're going to succeed, because then that's giving onto the patriarchy and that's given into the misogyny, right? So I think that that's what's so important for me to tell my coworkers and my girls and whatever. If you choose that route, that's fine. Hey, own your body, own your sexuality. I'm all, all for it, but not because you're giving in. Not because you think it's your only choice to be accepted and to be loved and to be respected in the dance world. Because you're not. You're not being respected and loved. You're just seen as a sexy woman. You're being used. And they're two very different things. Yeah. Right? Because that's what women are. You're just supposed to stand there, shut the fuck up and look cute. So then we can just see you. And then I'm problematic because I'm going to be like, excuse me, but I'm half of the turn. So I'm supposed to explain. Right? And then it's like, but, but you're this, why, why are you talking? So I'm problematic. So that's what the misogyny in the salsa world looks like. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> that's very clear. You know what I was thinking as you were talking? I, I thought of uh, your routines and I, I just love them aesthetically. And what I'm thinking is that, and correct me if you know I'm just putting something, if I'm projecting, but I feel right. that even the costume choice is it's just different uh like you have a sense of humor about it and you're mischievous right <laughs> <laughs> does that make sense yeah i mean i feel like i've had to come to a point where where i've had to be like well screw it right like like this is who i am and don't get me wrong like i tell my girls like please take things with a grain of salt i'm super passionate sometimes i th say things and they don't come out right or sometimes i'm really stressed i'm a human i'm gonna yell at you and maybe it was unjustified and like i'm human but at the end of the day this is what you get this is who i am and if you want to be on my team this is how things have to be done and like i said this is not a dictatorship we're all in this together and you all have a voice and you all can talk and suggest and make an opinion but at the end of the day i'm the director and things are done this way And if I say you can't have a hole in your fitness, you can't have a hole in your fitness, period. We have created a space for each other where, where, yeah, things have to have a certain standard, right? And that's not negotiable. But then from there on, everything else we can, we can talk about and we can come together as a, as a group, right? And when it comes to like our outfits and things like that, we, we discuss them together. I, I have a designer, I give her an idea. And, and whether it's sexy or not sexy, it's never done for that purpose. It's done for the purpose of this is what goes well with the routine. And it could be sexy or not. But like I said, it doesn't come from a place where I'm just gonna show my butt so I can be accepted and loved. No, it's if I want to be in a leotard and then the next one I want to be in a long dress, that's, that's the decision that I'm making for what I think is right for the routine. And believe me, a lot of people are not gonna like it. And, and that's art, it's subjective. That's the risk you have to take. I do want to go back to the business. Yeah. As you are building your thing, what is it that you're building? How do you, how do you think about it? I mean, it's hard because I, like, even though I grew up in this school, right, where it was very business oriented, I also grew up in a family that's zero business oriented. When I tell you, like, nobody in my family saves, uh, they don't own businesses, they don't own houses, like, just one part of my family. Like, I didn't grow up seeing this kind of stability financially. So it's something that I have to battle with constantly. I think I see the business more like a day-to-day -day thing right especially because it's dancing and and even though i do have kind of like a plan long term it's like every day is like i hope that you know people will buy my classes and I, and i think it's just more like a, a concept of okay 
what are the resources that I have and how can I exploit them to the max? How did you come up with the idea of doing the teams all over the world? I mean, that was actually a suggestion by Rudy Lopez, El Tigre. So he's, he's from Island Touch. Island Touch was pretty much the first company to do this kind of franchise uh, team thing. So Rudy was my close friend. And when I was starting to kind of like uh, almost leave Yamule and also kind of like started to make a name for myself, he was the one that was like, Carol, you should do the teams. You should do the teams. How does it work a little bit more on a, you know, business technical kind of level, like if you can share. So for example, like somebody contacts me and they say, hey, I want to have a Carol Flores team in Arizona, right? So I'm like, okay, this is how it works. So they have to pay me a monthly fee, right? For a minimum of certain months. So they can't just do one month, right? It's a minimum of certain months. They pay for each choreography, right? So they pay for a choreography, a certain amount of, month, a, a, a amount of money a month. And then they get this choreography through video. So there's one director who learns the choreography and then this director has their team and they teach this choreography to their team. Mm -hmm. And then it's basically their team with my name, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like a Starbucks, right? Like mm -hmm. if you have a Starbucks, it's the Starbucks name, but you hire your own employers, your employees, and you manage your Starbucks however you want, obviously with the Starbucks standards, but it's your Starbucks. So it's mm -hmm. the same idea, right? Like they follow my routine, they follow my rules, they follow my style, but they 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 lead their team however they see fit and, and mm -hmm. appropriate for their team, for the city, for their country, right? Because what the, what works here doesn't work the same in Russia. I have a team in Russia was one of my first teams in Yekaterinburg, right? Oh, wow. So it doesn't work. It, we don't have the same culture, so it works differently, right? Mm -hmm. So Elena runs her team however she sees fit for her culture, for her group, for the age of their, her, her dancers, for, for Russia, right? So they take my name, they take the name of the company. And then, so for example, like once a year we get together and we do like, um, like world team trainings. And then I meet a lot of these people and we put a choreography together and we dance it together. We do like a medley and I teach them. So I'm very involved with my teams as much as we can. It's been tough during the pandemic because a lot of these people just can't dance, but, but that's in a nutshell how it works. And how many teams are there now? Right now we have about 30, 30 teams. I mean, they're on and off right now during the pandemic, right. but I think we have about 30 teams, yeah. And where are they? Everywhere. I don't know, we have in the United States, we have a few. Um, we have in Europe, we have in, we had some in that recently like kind of like, kind of dissolved in like Argentina or Mexico. We have Poland, we have uh, Lebanon, we have Russia, like we just, we, yeah, we have them, we have them all over. We've had China, we've had Japan. That's like, so cool. Yeah, it's awesome, especially because we, we relay this message of women working together, of women not competing. So it's not just about the dancing, it's just not about the level of the dancing, but it's also about the message. So, so I feel like we're coming together a lot from different countries with different like, you know, social statuses or with different values. And we're, we're trying to implement this, right? Imagine uh, a team in Lebanon dancing to one of my routines who is super feminist, right? Like that says a lot. So I think that's the most amazing thing about it. And it's a, and it's a beautiful way to distribute messages and yeah, you do. I I saw that you did this routine for Black Lives Matter. What uh, yeah. was it um, created for for your groups? 
for your teams? No, that was that was like a choreography course that I did. Like uh, I did it when the pandemic started. I did two choreography courses where people all over the world signed up. I had like a hundred people who signed up for the course. And then I told them from the beginning, like, this is going to be a routine that is going to take a stand for Black Lives Matter. And it was beautiful because you had people from Japan, you had people from Peru, you had people from all over the world at the end of the choreography, kneeling with their fist up, taking a stance for Black Lives Matter, right? So to me, that was just, it was incredible. It was just so powerful. Wow. Yeah, but that was so not for cool. the teams. That was just open. That was just open for, for the public. Yeah. Got it. And so how yeah. do you how do you see the future of this thing? Like, what are you what are you building? How does how is the Carol Flores empire look like? I mean, listen, I had I had a really tough year uh, last year, like 2019 and 2018. I was recently discovered that I was dealing with mold in my apartment. So I was very sick for the last two years where I'm like surprised. I had a lot of joint. Yeah. It is what it is. We're dealing with it. But I had like joint and pain inflammation. I have extreme, I had extreme fatigue. Um, so, so I thought I couldn't dance anymore. So I started to kind of like think like, I I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. Like, I don't want to do it. But so I I was starting to think like, I'm going to go down another route and then maybe just go to college and do things. But now that I realized that I was sick, right? Like a lot has changed. And I think that I have to, I mean, I still want to go to college and, and maybe eventually like, I would love to do something like psychology and then help kids through dancing. Like it's something that I would love to do, but I feel like now maybe I have a couple more years. Probably more than a couple. I don't know how much detail, but it looks like you've shared it already with your community. What, what exactly yeah. happened? So, I mean, it looks like I moved into an apartment who had violation violations for mold. So I remember since 2015, I was very tired when I was dancing. And I just thought it was because I was in a toxic relationship that I was just like not there emotionally. But I think it was a little bit of that, but it was also like I was tired because the mold was making me tired and it was making me sick. So I was feeling not like myself. I started developing like stage fright because I was afraid of being tired on stage, right? So I was like, if I, if, I, if I get tired, I won't make it through the routine. And it would happen. I would get tired on stage. So you could see it in my face. You could see in my connection with my partner. Like oh it was just God. really bad, right? But I wow. didn't realize what was happening. And then in 2018, I fell down and I hurt my knee. And I was in bed for three months in the moldy apartment. So oh. let's say like in January of 2019, I developed a gluten allergy. Right. So I was all of a sudden allergic to gluten. I would get hives all over my body. When I tell you all over my body, everywhere, itchy hives. So it took a while for me to discover, first of all, that it was gluten because I didn't know. All of a sudden I had hives when I was eating food. So I went through like a crazy time trying to figure out what it was. Um, and when I tell you crazy time, like up until like three months ago, I was still figuring out that my shampoo had gluten. So like everything has gluten. Oh so it was a crazy like period where, I mean, up until now, I still get hives from something that I didn't know. Like maybe I tried something new and my perfume had gluten, right? So, so it's, it was still a struggle. And, and then all of a sudden I started uh, developing joint pain. So I was, I don't know, on a plane and then I got up and I couldn't walk and I had like, I had, they had to carry me out of rehearsals because I would just, out of nothing, I would just get like a, like, like a pain in my hip that was unbearable or yeah. my knee, I would wake up with like my fingers really swollen. So I was like, I can't dance anymore. Right. And I would, and I would go to these events exhausted 
injured. Mm. And a lot of these promoters or a lot of people thought I was faking it, mm. thought I was just didn't want to social dance with them, thought I was lying. So I, I, I had a rough time. Like it was a point where I called my assistant and I was like, cancel all the events. I don't want to dance anymore. I want to retire. Right. Yeah. So it was tough because I couldn't figure out what was happening. I went to many doctors and everybody said that I was fine. It doesn't even show that I have a wheat allergy in my in my panel. Yeah. So then so then um, I was quarantined. Right. So I was still sick. I was still super tired. I would feel depressed and and I would always push. Right. Because obviously my tired is not a normal person's tired because I'm an athlete. Yes. Right. So so to some people, I didn't look tired and I still looked like I had energy, but not to how I normally feel. So then so then I started doing research and research like action. Right. That's what I do. There's a problem. I act. So I started doing research and research and research and research until one day my boyfriend cleaned an AC and he said it was really dirty. And I smelled something weird, but I didn't pay attention to it. And then I kept listening to this podcast. Right. And in the podcast, he mentioned like, oh, I had a situation with with uh, with a uh, mold that was giving me brain fog. And that was one of my symptoms. Like I would like get brain fog. And also like uh, all of a sudden I started having blurry vision out of my right eye. So I see mm. like a dot, like even now I see a dot. I have blurry vision. I have floaters in my right eye. Nobody could tell why. Right. It was like from one day to the other. Like I was like this. And then in the airport, I was like, I see something black and then it never went away. So I have blurry vision. So I started hearing this and then I decided I was like, let me clean the other AC. And when I open it, I see that it's mold. Oh, my God. So then I ran to the kitchen, put the podcast that was about mold and then all the symptoms were there. So I called an inspector, he came in, he said, it's mold. He said, if you were my daughter, I would get you out of here now. So I like did the wow. research, listened to the podcast, read the books. And then within a week I had rented a different apartment and I left and I had to leave everything behind. Absolutely all of my belongings, everything that I've built here as an immigrant in the United States, I had to leave everything behind, my shoes, my costumes, my every, everything that's, that's non-porous, right? Like, of course, metal things and things like that I could bring with me as long as I could soak them in ammonia. I took a chance oh with my phone, like my I disinfected God. them, but everything I had to leave behind. But at least I know that that was making me sick. So now in a week, like I've been doing a lot of blood work and in a week I'm going to start like a deto like extreme detoxification process and hopefully I'll get better. Yes. Wow, this is... It's intense. And then I decided to share with my followers because I had so many symptoms that nobody could diagnose. So I decided to share with all my followers just in case somebody would had that. And you don't know how many people told me, I've been to shrinks, they get, I'm on Prozac, they say that, I dep that I'm depressed, but I don't get better. And after I saw your, pod your, your posts, I found mold in my apartment, right? And like, like mothers telling me like, it's crazy. Like mothers contacted me like, Carol, can I please give you a call? Because my daughter's been sick for years. She has all this. They tell me she has fibromyalgia. She tells me she has an autoimmune disease, but they can't find anything. I think we have mold. Yeah. So many people have had this issue. So it was, it was so hard the last uh, year and a half, almost two years now. And I, I thought I, I didn't want to dance anymore because it was just, I thought I couldn't. I thought I was getting older. I thought I couldn't take it with my, my, my lifestyle. And, and I thought I didn't want to dance anymore. I lost the passion for dance because I was afraid of being tired. So now I'm trying to rebuild as much as I'm rebuilding my health. I'm trying to rebuild 
my my relationship with dancing and my relationship with my body and 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 just be like i'm sorry we were sick we didn't know <laughs> but it's great to know yeah. that that's that's what it was yeah for sure and and that's not something um beyond that right that is harder to fix yeah i mean right now they're telling me like it's gonna take some people say it's gonna take six weeks for you to get better some people say i've been getting better for five years so it's very uncertain and it's it that's what's very frustrating because i don't like we don't know for certain they're saying like i'm gonna have to do the whole process and tests in a year and in two years and in five years to make sure that i'm okay but i'm very resilient so i think i'm gonna be okay but yeah, we'll <laughs> you're a tough cookie. <laughs> I sure am. <laughs> and, you know, obviously it's, it's you know, rather a trivial thing, but you, you know what you want and you have so much, you have so much drive. And, you know, when, when you're talking about this and you're saying you were thinking about giving up dancing, it's, it's hard to imagine that, I mean, were you really thinking about like fully giving it up or... Fully giving it up. Like, there was days where I was like, I don't want to ever dance again. No. Of course, like, things happen, right? Like, people have these ups and downs, and it's normal. But for me, it was like, I, I'm sick. Like, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm tired. I can't dance. I can't move. My body hurts. Like, why am I doing this to myself? And then on top of that, you get fans who are like, oh, she's just faking it. She's such a diva. She doesn't want to dance. Or promoters like, I'm never hiring her again because she didn't come down downstairs to dance when I was in the room, on the floor, in tears, in pain. Right? So, so there's those moments where it's like you get a social media message like, you're such a diva. You didn't, want, you didn't come downstairs to dance. And you're on the floor crying because you can barely walk. Where, where I would still go and do nine hours of boot camp in pain and you would think that anybody would say anything? No, they're like, well, that's what you have to do, right? So mm -hmm. those moments just were dark, right? When, when you feel like really nobody cares. And those were the moments where I was like, fuck everything. Like, I don't, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Like, why am I putting myself through this? I'll, I'll get a job and I'll fucking go to Macy's and get a job and I bet you in a year, I'll be fucking the manager of Macy's or something because I'll do it, right? So I, that was just my thought. I was like, I'm just gonna do something else. And, and, and I thought, but now I'm like, oh, Look at that. I was sick. Maybe it's not so dramatic. Maybe I can keep dancing. <laughs> so, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. But I like been... how you're 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 voicing out this inner voice of uh, similar to a stoic exercise uh, in a way how you were describing it the worst option of going right. to Macy's and and getting a job. Nothing wrong it, with Macy's. I hey, I'm not just just FYI. No, I don't think we need to make that caveat. Obviously, it's not a hit on anybody who's working in yeah, retail. It's just a and random I, job. Just making sure. I just said like the randomest thing that I could think of that was not dancing. <laughs> that was your choice. Right, I drove right. Uber. I don't, you know, I have, you do what you have to do. No, but uh, I think that it's important to say those things too because you never know what people are going through. Maybe they're having a tough day and they're like, bitch, I work at Macy's. What's wrong with that, right? I've just said it like a random job, just FYI. Just if anybody well, works and at I, Macy's. But, but I think that is valuable because you were, from what I understand as how you're describing it, prepared to one of those scenarios. Maybe you wouldn't have had to get the job at Macy's. You probably would have found something that is salsa adjacent but it would right. have been definitely a, a a cut 
life is full of those ups right. and downs. Oh, and they really sometimes are. They really you is. Do, Tell me about it <laughs> right now. You do have to go and take a cut in pay and in, in prestige and start over. And there, honestly, there's nothing wrong with that because at the way, at the rhythm that I was going with the level of unhappiness and just pain, I think I would have been happier in any nine to five job than I was traveling the world and being looked at wrong because I wasn't dancing and I was in pain, right? When yeah. being on a plane sitting for nine hours to travel was unbearable for my hip, right? So at the end of the day, anything would have been better than that at that point, right? I would have felt much better. And if you have to start over because something is not working out for you, do it. There's no shame in that. You, you should never stay in something that is not making you happy or that is not uh, working for you because you're just afraid to start over. Starting over is, is, is actually the best thing you can do for yourself if you're in a, in a toxic situation or in a situation that doesn't serve you. So there's no shame in starting over. There's no shame to change in careers. There's no shame in changing your mind, right? And I think that that's super important for people to know, right? That yeah. if I had to start over, I don't feel any shame about it. If I had to start over because I was sick or because I wasn't feeling well, I didn't feel any shame about it. I would start over and I would build a career as much as I built my career in dance with passion and determination <laughs> and tears. I think, I think that's a great place to wrap. Is there, is there anything that uh, we missed? I mean, obviously we didn't cover <laughs> a lot of things, but is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience? No, I mean, I, I, I always just want to share my gratitude. I want to share my gratitude for absolutely every person who's going to sit here for almost two hours and just listen to me talk and who think that maybe they can get some answers from my story or maybe they can get some inspiration from my story. I, I don't take that for granted. And I am I'm very aware of how, how lucky and privileged I am because I have people who love me and who follow me and who spend their money or their time with me. And, and I just... I hope that they know this. I hope they know how, how grateful I am for, for all of them. So, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's uh, thank you. Th and I am grateful to you for, and I'm sure I'm speaking for all of your followers, for your art and how much you share. Uh, thank and you. for these two hours, I'm grateful especially because <laughs> it was thank so you. much fun uh, to get to know you a little bit. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I'm sure you can tell I'm really inspired by Carol's work. And I will be posting some of her routines on my social media throughout the week. And they are stellar. You should definitely check them out and follow Carol on Instagram. Carol Flores. Uh, maybe even take a class with her. She does online classes all the time. I mean, the pandemic is going to end eventually, right? Uh, right? <laughs> Share the show with a friend. Just one friend per week, okay? Or even better, get them a gift in our gift shop. Three birds with one stone. Show love for your friend love for the podcast, and to the immigrant cause. It's a win-win-win. And don't forget to chime in for our holiday episode. Listen, 
Since I was a kid, my favorite thing was always getting mail. I guess that kind of dates me. But yeah, I grew up when people still actually wrote letters to each other on paper and put them into envelopes and mailed them. And uh, these days, my mail mostly consists of bills and unemployment messages showing my balance melting away. And that's not very fun. That's not very holiday. So it makes me super happy to hear from you. It makes me feel like I'm not alone on this spaceship. Call Google Voice or email a voice memo by December 17th and I'll play it on the podcast. That would make me really, really happy if you did that. I know you'll do it. So thank you. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Stay safe. Love you all. Peace. Country, you can keep the rest. This is my country, my damn country, and it don't mean a thing.